Psalm 84. Psalm 84. As I said earlier, I, I named or I titled this psalm, The Joy of Being in God's House. And like I said earlier, if you were here this morning, um, it's kind of misleading because it's not really about the joy of being in God's house. But why the psalmist was so joyful to be in God's house? And that's because where God would meet him. Psalm 84 is one of the psalms of Zion. And the Psalms of Zion celebrate God's presence in Jerusalem. It's the city where his temple was built. Zion was used as a name for the city of Jerusalem, the land of Judah, and the people of Israel. Today, we don't have to go to Jerusalem, though, to get close to God. Because God is near to those who trust in his son, Christ. This psalm was written by the the sons of Korah, who were temple assistants. And there are six actions that follow in this psalm. Number one, the expression of being at home in Zion, verses three and uh, I'm sorry, verses one and two. Again, the desire of the the expression of the desire to be at uh, home at Zion, verses one and two. Secondly, the blessings of being at home in Zion, verses three and four. Third, the blessing of those who make pilgrimages to Zion, verses five through seven. Fourth, a prayer for God's attention in Zion, verses eight through nine. And fifth, the joy of being at home in Zion, verses 10 through 11. And sixth, the blessing of trusting in God, verse 12. The theme, God's living presence is our greatest joy. His presence helps us grow in strength, grace, and glory. Charles Spurgeon said this about this psalm. He said, this psalm well deserved to be committed to the noblest of the sons of song." No music could be too sweet for its theme or too exquisite in sound to match the beauty of its language. Sweeter than the joy of the wine press, the joy of the holy assemblies of the Lord's house. Not even the favored children of grace who are like the sons of Korah can have a richer subject for song than Zion's sacred festivals. It matters little when this was written or by whom. For our part, it exhales, exhales to us a Davidic perfume. It smells the mountain heather and the lone places of the wilderness where King David must have often lodged during his many wars. This sacred ode is one of the choicest of the collection. It has a mild radiance about it, entitling it to be called the Pearl of Psalms. He says, if the 23rd Psalm be the most popular and the 103rd Psalm the most joyful and the 119th the most deeply experimental and the 51st Psalm the most plaintive, This one is the most sweet of the Psalms of peace. Pilgrimage or journeys or trips to the tabernacle were a major high point of Jewish life. Families would travel together, forming groups that grew at each place where they stopped. You know, they'd leave, you know, from the furthest points away and they'd go and they'd meet others on the road and they'd get together and they'd continue on until they got to Jerusalem. So you can imagine how this crowd gathered and it was really a wonderful experience for these Jewish families in their Jewish life. Again, they, they, would, they would camp in sunny open places. They would sing in unison along the roads. They would work hard together to get over the hills and through the swamps as they went along and they stored up happy memories that would never be forgotten. Now, if somebody was left out of this holy gathering of the pilgrims and the devout worship of the congregation, they would find in this psalm the perfect words for their sad spirit. 
This is a psalm of longing for God's house. Some say it's a psalm of people who were present in the temple, who served in God's house, and here they were expressing how, they, how intensely their souls wanted very much to be in God's house and even fainted for God. And what they were saying is that their souls want very much to be in God's house, not because they were separated from it, but because that's where they were and wanted to be. It's why they were serving. So let's begin with Psalm 84, verse 1. And the psalmist begins, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. The psalmist doesn't tell us just how lovely God's house was. Because he couldn't. Why couldn't he? He didn't have the words. Because the words that he uses shows us that his feelings involve more than words could describe. It was lovely to the memory. Lovely to the mind and to the heart and to the eye, to the whole soul. This was how lovely it was for the gathering of the saints. There's no other sight on earth more amazing to me than when believers get together to worship him. You can see their heart for God. You can see them all together, just lifting their hearts before the Lord. Spurgeon said this. Those are sorry saints who see nothing lovely in the services of the Lord's house. A pretty strong statement. The whole temple was lovely to the psalmist. The outer court, the inner court, it didn't matter to him. You know what? And it shouldn't matter. He loved every part of it. Every cord and curtain, every pole and every dedicated thing, every piece of furniture, everything was dear to the psalmist. Even when he was far away from God's house, he rejoiced when he remembered the holy tent. For Jehovah made his presence known to them. And he cried out with excitement when he thought about his sacred services. They were serious service as he had seen them performed in the past. He says, because it's your tabernacle or Lord of hosts. That's why it's so dear to your people. It's the center of the camp. All of your creatures gather around it and where everybody's eyes are looking. Like the armies that that look to to the king's tent. Verse 2. He goes on, for my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Why wasn't it good enough for the psalmist just to read his Bible? You know, to just study. You know, and get, get to have, a warm, fuzz, have warm and fuzzy thoughts about God. I mean, you can have the greatest times of being spiritually refreshed. Refreshed in the comfort and privacy of your own home. You're being in the midst of God's creation in nature. You know, people like to go out on the beach and sit and read their scriptures. They like to go to the mountains and read their Bibles, get out in the woods. And all of us should have these kind of thoughts about God. Develop them and treasure them. But here's the reality about human experience. Thinking about God has never really been good enough to satisfy any human being that really knows the Lord. If you really know the Lord and you've really experienced the Lord and he's spoken to you through the word and through prayer. Hey, thinking about him is not going to do anymore. Because man is a multifaceted being. You know, he's not just all thought. He has a body. He has a soul. He has a spirit. There's many parts to his makeup. We have to be more concerned about our God than just thinking about him. 
And this psalm cries out for his revealed presence in the temple. You see, the psalmist here doesn't just go to church. He's going there to meet God there. And when you're in love with somebody, warm, fuzzy memories don't, just don't get it. Thinking about them and seeing pictures aren't enough to satisfy your need and your want for that person. You want to see them. You want to talk to them. And you want them to talk with you. You want a warm communion and fellowship with them. I want to be in their presence. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He says, my soul longs. Yes, even faints for the living God. Now, not every lovely thing gives us those feelings that make us long or even faint for it. The word faint here means to be consumed with longing. In other words, he's dying of love. To be exact, the psalmist so passionately loves and is inflamed with such a great desire to get a hold of the thing that he loves that he wastes and pines away. That is, he gets weak, weaker and weaker. He, he gets until he gets what he wants. <clears throat> so a passionate longing is what's meant here which so torments and burns the mind that his flesh and his spirit waste away as long as it's not allowed to enjoy the thing that he desired. The soul, the heart, and the flesh, it says here, speaks of the whole human man with every feeling and affection. And the words here of the psalmist, they are, they are so very meaningful. The word long literally means has grown pale. As with intensity of the feeling, the word faints is more exactly faints or is consumed. The word translated cry here is from the Hebrew meaning to shrout, a shrill or cry out, rejoice. That is shouting uh, or exulting for joy to the living God. But the word here is used for the parent crying out for the child that he's lost. So here the similarity to longs and faints, you know, requires these words cry out he's crying out for it's like a child it's like a parent and if you're a parent you know what it is you know to to lose a child or or for that child to be gone for a while no you you know maybe they've got got lost and 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 you don't know where they are and and, you know what your heart cries out for that child and here the psalmist is saying my heart is crying out for the lord's court like something that was once enjoyed, but now it's, it's absent and it's terribly missed. The Hebrew word means a strong cry for the living God. The psalmist isn't interested in the ceremonies that were performed. Not, not in the way this is meant here. Or the songs that they sang or the sacrifices that they offered. He was interested mostly in the conscious presence of the living God. It wasn't the courts of the Lord that he wanted. But he was crying out in prayer. I want to be with the living God himself. Oh, that I might know him. Oh, that I might have communion with him again. Rituals and ceremonies, they're empty things. If we don't meet with the God of those ceremonies and those rituals, rituals, prayer and communion, for example. Do we have those times with God? Look at verse three. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself when she may lay where she may where she may lay her lay her young. 
Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. The point that the psalmist was making is, look at even the birds make their home at the temple. And they were secure there. They didn't fear their enemies. Think if only God's people would make their home in God. They would find their security in him. Now, sparrows in the Bible are a symbol of something that isn't worth much. We read in Matthew 10, 29, that two sparrows could be sold for a farthing and five could be sold for two farthings. A farthing was the smallest and least valuable copper coin. And yet the sparrow found a home near God's altar. And sometimes we think animals are dumb. (laughs) But man, they do things many times better than human beings. Won't God allow, won't God also provide a home for you? You being a lot worth a lot more than a sparrow. Swallows also. Swallows like sparrows are a symbol of worthlessness. A swallow is the Bible symbol of restlessness. It's a bird. A swallow is a bird that's always in the air. And if you watch them, they're what? They're darting around. They're just zooming here and there from morning to night. A picture of restlessness. But when it comes time to mate and raise their young, the swallow builds its nest and settles down near the altar to rest quietly. This is a picture of man's soul apart from God. Darting here and there, you know, just going here and there, day and night, just like they don't know where to go. But then when they find God, they settle down and they rest quietly. They finally come to rest in him. Proverbs 27, 8 says, like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. Instinct teaches the bird that the nest is the only place of safety or rest. And here God has provided her special protection, the special protection for her. So nothing but danger is waiting for her if she wanders from that nest. And if she wanders from that nest, seldom does she come back home without some kind of injury to herself or her little ones. Now, her nest might be cold. It might be uncomfortable. It might be inconvenient. But you see, her wanderings make her more restless and more dissatisfied because she's not home where she belongs. She's safe and she's happy only while she stays in her nest. It's not wise. And it's dangerous to leave the place the people are calling that God's providence has called you to. Here, man is in God... You know, in this picture here, man is in God's boundaries. Man is where God has placed him, so he's under his protection. And if he'll be happy to stay in his place, God will bless him with a rich reward of godly contentment. But on the other hand, the man who wanders from his place is always restless. And every new whim, every new fancy sends him off on a new search. Always wanting to be something always wanting to have something or always wanting to be doing something or finding something, wanting to be somewhere different than than what and where he should be uh, uh, exposes him to constant temptation and danger. When we're not where we should be, we're constantly exposed to temptation and danger. And you know what? That person only exchanges imagined troubles. You know, so many times when, you know, we we get restless, you know, in, in our life, and we imagine how wonderful it's going to be if we were doing something else or with somebody else or somewhere else. 
He only exchanges imagined troubles and imagined boredom, being home. He exchanges them for real troubles when he leaves his nest, like the prodigal son. He didn't want to stay home. He didn't want to be under dad's you know, guardianship or, or leadership. He thought, oh, how wonderful it would be to be out there with my buddies and partying and having a good time. And we know how that story ended. When the money ran out, the buddies took off and he was eating pig food. And he remembered, oh, how good I had it at home. You see, it's wisdom to know and to keep our place where God has put us. The soul, the body, the family, the society. I mean, they all have a claim on us. And this restless anxiety about idleness is the symptom of disease. It's totally opposed to religion. It's a curse to both of our comfort and our usefulness. The basic rule can't ordinarily be broken without sin. 1 Corinthians 7.24, Paul said, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. In other words, whatever situation you were in when you became a believer, stay there. Stay there in your new relationship with God. Then will we abide in fellowship with God? We must abide in our calling. Every step, remember this, every step that we take away from our calling without a clear scriptural reference is a departure from God. If we don't have a clear scriptural assurance that God has sent me somewhere or he's called me to another place. That's a departure from God. From where God has called you to be. And so many Christians do that. Oh, well, I feel like God is calling. You feel like it? Oh, well, I think I need a change. Well, I've been, you know, I just. You better know. Because you're setting yourself up for dangers and temptations. And it's a departure from where God wants you to be. We're safe as long as we're following the hand of God. But to go out, to, but to go out without the hand of God, without the providence of God leading us. Or even worse, to deviate from the providence of God. Then a man wanders from his place at his own risk and his own cost. Remember what Moses said, Lord, if, if your presence don't go with me, I ain't going. We can never take one step outside of God's will without having to pay a price. It's often the strong-willed impulse of idle pleasure. But always with the same result, disaster. Dinah, Leah's daughter or sister, was safe when she was with her family. Like the bird in her nest. But we read the tragic story in Genesis 34, 1 and 2. It says, one day Dinah went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. She was probably home. She was probably bored. She wanted to go see some of the girlfriends that lived in her area. It says, but, but when the local prince, Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, saw Dinah, he seized her and raped her. She, and again, no, not to no fault of her own. You know, she didn't ask for this. But, but again, sometimes when we read God's word, and he says, hey, you know what? Do these things. Listen to his word. The enemy's trap suit entangled this unsuspecting wanderer. And again, without the, again, what's important is the, the assurance of a scriptural call of God. Then you're in God's will and then you're going to be in God's protection. 
But when I get this boredom and this idleness, and I just feel like, man, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta do something. I gotta get out of here. You're setting yourself up for the enemy's attack. There's only one being in this world that doesn't fit the world that he's in, and that's man. Other beings perfectly fit their environment where God has put them. It said that man only runs faster when he gets lost. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. Have you found that rest? Have you found rest in God? Or are you still wandering and restless like so many people today? Looking for that something. And I remember those days when I was when I wasn't saved. Every weekend, I think, well, maybe I'll find, you know, I know what these what it means now. But then I'm going, well, maybe next week and the next party or the next experience. That's what I'm going to find. That's what I'm going to find what I'm looking for there. I'm going to find something. But after a while, I begin to think, man, is this all there is? Weekend after weekend, nothing empty. Wandering and restless. But you see, God offers you peace. Even the swallow here found a nest for herself when she could, where she could lay her young. Verse 3 says, even at your altars. Look at verse 4 now. Blessed or happy are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. This blessing is for those who live and work in the temple. Those God seems to esteem or God, those that God esteems to be highly favored are those who are constantly busy in divine worship, the servants who sweep in dust. To come and to go, hey, it is exciting. Oh, it's a new venture. I'm going to have a new experience. But understand, to abide, which means to dwell or to remain or to stay in a given place. To abide in the place of prayer is heaven on earth. To be God's guests. Enjoying the hospitalities, the joy of heaven. Being set apart for God's holy work. Protected from a noisy world and familiar with the things of God. Hey, this is the sure. The best heritage that a child of God can have. And you know what? We should be prepared for this blessing tonight, now. Since it was what the psalm has been about almost entirely up to this point. The psalmists were aware that the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples built by hands. But there had been a special appearance of God at the temple. Remember when he ascended in the form of the Shekinah glory to dwell with the most in the most within the most holy place. And even though that visible glory at some point had departed or would depart, the early worshipers all say all the same felt the presence of God in the temple. And even in Jerusalem, like they had never done before. That's why David wrote in Psalm 27, 4. And we sing a song about this. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You know what? We need to be one thing people. One thing people. People, he said, one thing have I, have I desired. One thing. 
It's why the psalmist speaks of longing and fainting for the courts of the Lord. He had one thing in mind. He had one desire. And that was to be with the living God. Why? In, in, in Zion, because God dwelled in Zion, again, or Jerusalem. It was the most favored of all human beings. The, the most favored of all human beings were those who lived there as well, in Zion, in Jerusalem. Especially those who, like the priests, actually worked in the temple. Whether they made sacrifices, whether they led in worship, whether they attended to the usual custodial work, cleaning the house of God, they were blessed there. We read here, blessed are those who dwell in your house, they will still be praising you. There are no menial tasks in the house of God. Whatever I get to do, it is a privilege. Whatever I get to do. Being so near to God, their life has to be a life of worship. Now, no doubt that their hearts and tongues never stopped magnifying the Lord. And sad to say that the psalmist here drew a picture of what should be in the house of God today rather than what it is. Unfortunately, those who are busy, you know, every day taking care of the place of public worship, they're not always the most committed. It's more like I have to or I should do this. Or I feel like I have to. So they're not that committed. And they're hit and miss when they're supposed to be here or they've said they're going to be here. Oh, well, this came up or well, that came up. Yet in a spiritual sense, this is most true for those children of God who who in spirit abide in his house. They receive the blessing. They're also always full of praises of God. They dwell in him. That's why they're full of praises of God. Relationship is the source of worship. Relationship is the source of worship. Those who wander far from the Lord fail to praise Him. But those who dwell in Him, abide in Him, remain in Him, they're always magnifying the Lord. Verse 5. Another blessed. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. There's blessing for those who are making their way to God's house. Now, not everybody was able to live in Jerusalem. Most of the people were scattered throughout the countryside in small villages or farms. And the psalmist doesn't forget these people. And in fact, he has a blessing for them too. Look at verses 6 through 7. He says, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Verses 6 and 7 describe the blessings of those who would be making their way to Jerusalem for the feast. Every area they pass through will be blessed. Even the Valley of Baca. Now, the Valley of Baca is not a literal place. It's any place with tears. It's literally a valley of weeping. Now, there's any place where you experience trials. A geographic site named the Valley of Baca isn't found anywhere or identified anywhere in the Bible. 
The word baka is a Hebrew word, a, a meaning balsam tree. And the sap of this tree oozes like tears. So the valley of Baca is a name for any difficult and painful place in life where everything just seems so hopeless and you feel helpless. Like you're in the pit of despair. But the people who love God, the psalmist says here, they expect to pass through this valley. But they don't expect to remain there. And they get a blessing from their experience in the valley of tears. And you know what? They leave a blessing behind. They turn it, it says here, into a spring. And it says, notice, they will go from strength to strength until each one appears before God in Zion. They, on that trip to Jerusalem, they will experience difficult times. But through each experience, notice, they go from strength to strength until each one appears before God in Zion. Nobody, nobody misses out. As they experience strength to strength, it says each one appeared before God. He got them there. He got them through that valley of tears. Not one person would be left behind. This is an awesome picture of the Christian life. A wonderful picture of of the Christian life. Those who have come to know God in Christ, they're not looking for an earthly temple. And as we move forward in Christ toward the goal, we pass through. And you know, we all pass through many valleys of Baca. We pass through many valleys of tears. But you know what? We're not or should not be discouraged by them because we're told we're going to go through them. Jesus made it very clear. You will have much tribulation. But then he gave us the encouragement. But he says, you shall, he says, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. We, not, we should not be discouraged by going through the Valley of Baca, just the opposite. We rise above those, 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 those trials. We, we rise above those painful experiences. And it says here, we go on from strength to strength and strengthening each other along the way and blessing everybody that we meet. And then look what he says in verse 8. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Psalm is saying, Lord, let my cry be heard. You listen to all the prayers of all of the saints. But don't shut your ears to my one little prayer. Even though I'm not worthy to be heard. Verse 9. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. God can be thought of as our shield. To protect us from the enemy's blows. The psalmist thinks lovingly of God as his defense from the dangers of the journey that he's going to make to Zion. This pilgrim journey. And we're on a pilgrim journey, uh, you know, through this earth. We're on a a pilgrim journey as pilgrims of progress as to the celestial city. To the heaven. And, And so we can think of ourselves as God's anointed. You see, if God has brought us into close, loving relationships of service to him, he's given us a plea to use in prayer. We can say, look upon the face of your anointed God. Verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
beautiful verse. The psalmist means here, one day spent in God's house would be better than a thousand days spent anywhere else. Even under the best circumstances where the pleasures of the world can be enjoyed, they're not comparable by so much, by so much as one in a thousand to the joy of serving the Lord. I mean, to feel His love. To rejoice in the person of, the, of, of His Son, the anointed Savior. To look at the promises of God. To feel the power of the Holy Spirit in making real the precious truth to our hearts. That is a joy that earthlings or worldlings or the people who can't understand. But which true believers are overcome with because we've, we've experienced it. Even a glimpse at God's love is better than ages spent in the pleasures of our flesh. And the psalmist said here, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness, which is the lowest, most menial position. In the Lord's house is better than the highest position among the godless. Even if all I do or all I get to do is stand at, at, at the threshold of his house and kind of sneak inside and get a peek so that I can see Jesus, that's ecstasy. Hey, to do menial tasks, if all I, if all I do is clean God's house and if all I do is open doors and pick up trash around the, 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 the property... If all I get to do is sweep for the Lord, that's more honor, the psalmist says, than to live inside the tents of wickedness. Every man, every woman has their choice. This is ours that the psalmist is talking about. God's worst is better than the devil's best. God's doorstep is a happier rest than soft Fluffy couches inside the most luxurious tents of royal sinners. Even though we might lie there for a lifetime of luxury. Notice how he calls the tabernacle the house of my God. That's where the sweetness of the psalmist lies. This is the house of my God. If Jehovah is our God, his house, his altars, his doorstep, they all become precious to us. They all become special to us. And we know by experience, hey, that's where Jesus is. He's inside. The outside of the house is better than the most lofty rooms where the Son of God is not found. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will, great, will give grace and glory. No, notice, no good thing will, will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Heavenly pilgrims are not left uncomforted or unprotected. The pilgrim people found both sun and shield. Remember in that fiery, cloudy pillar that represented the, 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 the presence of God? And today the Christian still finds both light and shelter in their God. He shines on us. 
And he's what makes the brightness in our day. And he's the shield from our enemies. And is the only possible source of favor and true honor. He's a sun for happy days and he's a shield for the dangerous days. He's a sun above us and he's a shield around us. He's a light to show the way. He's a shield to ward off the dangers in life. And the psalmist says, blessed are they, happy are they, who journey with such a group as being described here. It's the sunny and shady side of life. They're all the same to them. And he says, the Lord will give grace and glory. When needed, God will give both with total assurance. The Lord both has infinite grace and glory. And Jesus is the fullness of both of them. Jesus is the fullness of infinite grace and glory. And as God's chosen people, we will receive both as a free gift from God, our salvation. What more could the Lord give us? What more could we receive? What more can we want? And notice what he says in verse 11. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And if you don't receive something thinking it's a good thing, well, it's obviously not. Because he said, no good thing will he withhold from you. A lot of times we ask for things and we think they're good. And we don't get them and we say, well, how come, Lord? Well, it's not a good thing. Good has to be by God's definition. And it says those who walk uprightly, that means in perfectness. There's another condition. No good thing will he withhold from us or from them that walk in perfectness. And grace makes us walk uprightly. And then that guarantees every covenant blessing to us that God promises. Psalm 3410 says those who seek the Lord, notice those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. I mean, that's a broad promise. Like I said a minute ago, what might seem like something good, God might withhold it. But not real good. Not what's true good. He won't withhold from you not one true good thing. Paul said in Colossians 3, 22 through 23, all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. God has everything that's good. And there's no good apart from God and there's no good that he neither needs to keep back or will keep back for any reason, uh, refuse us if we're ready to receive it. That means we have to be upright. And neither lean to, uh, to this side or to that side or, or to lead to any form of evil. And our uprightness has to be real. We must walk in truth and holiness and then we will be the heirs of all things. And as we mature, all things will be in our actual possession. And meanwhile, according to our ability for receiving, shall be the measure of God's receiving. What we're ready to see, God will pour out upon us. And this is true, not just of a favored few, but all of God's saints. Verse 12 as we close. O Lord of hosts, notice another blessed. Blessed is the man or happy is the man who trusts in you. The third blessing 
is for those who simply trust God. The final analysis is what really matters and what life is about. So we need to learn to seek after God. In the company of his people, the church, and by looking to heaven. If you want to learn about God and you want to come to know him personally, start with the church. This is why we meet. This is why we get together. It's God himself that we long for. You know, Ecclesiastes tells us that God put eternity in our hearts. Nothing else will fill that void. And there's only one that's eternal, and that's God. And through his son, we will find that that fulfillment when he fills that empty void. God is the one that people are looking for. It's him alone. It's in him alone that people will be satisfied. It's not the fellowship of God's people, even as awesome and rewarding as that can be. John said, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. McLaren said, if we want rest, let us hold on to God as ours. If we desire a home, warm, safe, shelter from every wind that blows and inaccessible to enemies, let us, like the swallows, nestle under the eaves of the temple Let us take God for our hope. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word, Lord. Father, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. And Father, I pray that we would just soak it in, God. Lord, I pray that it would become a favorite your people, God. Because it says so much about you, God. Not so much about the building or the rituals or the ceremonies, and and I don't mean those things in a bad way. But so many times we can get up, get caught up in the things of God and not God himself. Lord, may we seek after you, as the psalmist said. God, may we hear from you through the word. May we hear from you in prayer. And when we do, we will never settle for less. And in my own thoughts and opinion, for what they're worth, I think that if if a person hasn't, hasn't ever heard from God through the word or prayer they're not truly seeking after him because God says that he will diligently reward those who seek him seek him diligently that is he will reward those who diligently seek him and that's the key diligently seek him he will speak And that's why you can never settle for anything else. You'll never settle for just going to church. You'll never just settle being taught by some pastor or teacher or whoever. Like David, you will want to hear from the living God. 
And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know anything about this kind of a relationship with God. Well, you can commune, you can fellowship with the living God, the creator of the universe. Through a personal relationship with him. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if God has spoken to your heart. And you want to have a relationship with this God. You do it through his son, Jesus Christ. And as we worship, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down up towards the steps. Make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.